Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings listeners, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, a continental conglomerating podcast with me, Dan, obsessed (laughs) with dips in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, obsessed with ABBA in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) Yes. In this podcast, we nod knowingly over genre films, horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because nothing gets us going more than Big Pharma, 90s virtual reality, and of course, data storage. Conrad, mm. hello. <laughs> <laughs> hello, Dan. So what's this about dips? <laughs> uh, well, you know, going through the vegan phase at the moment um, oh, and, yeah. and, you know, trying to find alternatives to dairy and a lot of a lot of dips have, have dairy in it. But, um, mm. yeah, it, it seems that you can pretty much put anything in a blender uh, <laughs> and it becomes a dip. <laughs> so... <laughs> They're making a lot of dips with with butter beans and lentils and uh, yeah anything you just just put it in a, a blender and blitz it. <laughs> How about avocado? Where do you stand on avocado? Mm, yeah, I love avocado. Avocado has been yeah. really cheap in Australia for the last two three years. I don't know why. There's no off season. It's 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 always been like a dollar fifty, maybe two dollars <laughs> for an avocado for the last two and a half years. It's amazing. Marvellous. I do love a bit of mashed avocado. Mm. <laughs> Honestly, I'm such a cliche driving my electric car and vegan <laughs> avocado toast. It's it's bad. Yes, and, and also going to ABBA. <laughs> yes, also going to ABBA. I ventured out for the very first time with my brother to go and see a concert in London. Mm. And of course it was the virtual ABBA concert in their purpose-built stadium in the old Olympic Village. And it is spectacular, absolutely spectacular. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you described it, and I, I can't even fathom it. It's just, it just sounds like a, a science fiction film. <laughs> it really does, yeah. I mean, just thousands of lights and these enormous screens, and it completely convinces you that the four of them are on stage in front of you just because it creates this illusion of this continuous environment of lights. So all the lights in the stadium are matched by lights sort of in and around and behind them. And as the lights go past them, they actually light them up. And it's really quite phenomenal. And the live band that's playing the music are on point. It sounds just like the recordings, but genuinely alive and full of uh, improvisation and fun as well and they are great musicians and yeah just bottom line being in a room with three thousand people jumping up and down to gimme 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 a man after midnight while lasers (laughs) fire around the room and abba jumps about on stage in tron outfits is a great way to spend Mm. your evening (laughs) yeah yeah i mean uh we're in the future conrad we are 
the possibilities are endless because I guess they can just change the lineup whenever they want to because I imagine they've done more songs than that and they have to wow. the bag so I mean imagine yeah. if they just keep writing songs and and then they release them you know after they're gone and yeah. they continue to have <laughs> <Yeah>. concerts <laughs> they could do they could have prepared you know they could have prepared a statement for their 100th anniversary or something. You don't yeah. know. It's, wow. Yeah, it's quite freaky and quite relevant to what we'll be talking about today. So oh, yes. there we go. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's to come. But before that, mailbag, Conrad, have our listeners been speaking to us? They have. And I will kick off with a really lovely uh, message that we got through Facebook from a guy called Steve, who said, Mm -hmm. Hi, Dan and Conrad. Just a quick note to say how much I love your podcast. I've discovered so many gems as a result of tuning in. You both bring so much humour and knowledge to the show, and the quality of the production itself is second to none. The jingles and theme are top-notch. I'm always humming the theme much to my (laughs) wife's annoyance. Keep up the great work. I'm just sorry that I'm getting close to being up to date. I'm on Nightbreed, so it means I'll have to wait longer in between movie gems. All the best, Steve. Isn't that just lovely? Oh, that is that is uh, very, very kind words. It is. Thank you so much, Steve. I just love the idea of somebody sort of binging us all the way from the beginning and finally catching up. That's amazing. That is very impressive. I mean, more than 100 episodes. <laughs> that uh, Wow. I, I'm surprised you're not sick of our voices. I know I would be. <laughs> but there we are. So welcome aboard, Steve. It's great mm. to hear from you. Yes. Uh on ill-advised director cameos in relation to M. Night Shyamalan's appearance in Lady in the Water, Bent Ed suggested that Quentin Tarantino in Django Unchained was probably not a good idea. Right. So, I don't know if you've seen that movie. Yes, I have. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. Quentin, I mean, yeah. He he likes his feet and he likes to cameo, you know. Yeah. He can... He can have his cake and eat it too. I suppose so. I didn't know whether tonally he fit into that movie now that Ben Ted mentions it, but mm, yeah. there we go. Talking about representations of critics in movies, Kevin from Planet X said, Your discussion of the critic character in Lady in the Water reminded me of the Siskel and Ebert analogues in Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. The response from the real-life critics to the lack of a grisly demise for their on-screen counterparts was actually disappointment. (laughs) Oh, wow. Really? (laughs) Yeah, they wanted to be eaten, apparently. (laughs) Oh. Fair enough. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) If you've got a sense of humour about yourself. I suppose in that one it wasn't, um, you know, criticising their work at the same time. I don't know. Mm. There we go. On Shocker, Back to Oz says, even if you put it to the oubliette, you still made me want to see it. <laughs> yeah. I love when that happens, though. Like, I, I love yeah. <laughs> even if, if a movie sounds awful, you kind of want to experience why. <laughs> or maybe it doesn't sound awful, you know. Yeah. So maybe we're failing in our central mission of curating films for people and advising them against pitfalls. <laughs> because, you know, if it's a bit of a car crash, you want to check it out, don't you? It's just human yeah. nature. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and if, if if you've had a very detailed discussion about how it doesn't work, you you would like to see why, like how mm. how did it not work? Like what went wrong? You know. Yeah, exactly. 
On your weird DVD cover, Luis Saavedra says, what's the most outrageous international interpretation of a movie title? For example, oh. Home Alone is, and I'm going to not say this right, Mi Pobre Angelito or My Poor Angel in Latin America. <laughs> right. That's... Um... <laughs> No resemblance to no. the original title. <laughs> no, and I don't think he's a poor angel either. <laughs> he's a little shitbag. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> when we ask people to name their favourite film produced by a live film, so like uh, Shocker, ah, Eddie yes. Coulter says, Prince of Darkness is by far my favourite. Such mm. a great creepy flick. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've covered it on the pod. It was a it was mm. a very interesting uh, sort of left of center uh, movie. Yeah, strange, moody, dark, cerebral horror mm. movie. Yeah, really enjoyed that one. And finally, of course, we heard from Surge of Cold uh, Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. <laughs> Who said, Shocker is plagued with tonal inconsistencies, unexplained rules of the world and weird character motivations and behaviours. I think it works better as a comedy than a horror, but really only half of it. And I'm not sure it knows that anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Summed it up perfectly, as always. Yeah. If they'd so. gone full tilt into the comedy, like, like Brain Dead, uh, Peter Jackson's mm. movie, then it could have been a sort of very unique, funny movie, but not quite. Yeah, not quite. No, or Intruder, which also featured Sam Raimi, but no. Nope. Didn't work. <laughs> Didn't work. But what did work was receiving all of your messages. We loved hearing from you, so please keep sending them in. Mm, yes. So, what are we doing today, Dan? Well, I guess people will probably know from the opening title that this is a childhood nostalgia episode, but I'll just go grab it. Mm. Oh, there's some data gloves I, I guess I should put on and this weird visor thing. Oh, futuristic. I have to launch myself into the internet. <laughs> a few codes here and there. Oh, here it is. Got it. Ugh. Wow. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Oh, that's a relief. And I have with me today, it is, yes, a childhood nostalgia film. So from my childhood uh, as mm -hmm. a angsty teenager, or so young teen <laughs> or tween, I guess, when this uh, came out, from 1995, Johnny Mnemonic. Ooh, yes. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> yes, I know. So uh, his first film that we're going to be discussing on the podcast, uh, mm. directed by uh, Robert Longo, who I don't know any other films that he's directed, <laughs> uh, screenplay by William Gibson, the uh, sort of godfather of cyberpunk. Uh, and it stars mm. Keanu Reeves, Dina Mayer, Takeshi Kitano, Dennis Akiyama, Ice-T, Dolph Lundgren, <laughs> Henry Rollins and Udo Kier. <laughs> Only in the 90s could that lineup happen. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and what happens? Well, it is the year 2021. So just Ooh. last year, <laughs> a plague grips the world. NAS. Does it now? <laughs> yes. Nerve attenuation syndrome. The corporation rules while the populace wallows in poverty and cyberpunk implants. 
The internet is a dangerous place full of hackers and data pirates, and the only way to transport data is downloaded onto the brains of human couriers, mnemonics. Mm. Enter our main character, Johnny. Just Johnny. He is tasked with delivering an unfathomable amount of data. Was that 320 gigabytes? Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) But he is double-crossed and hunted by the Yakuza and a sadistic, murderous preacher. (laughs) However, he is helped by Jane and Spider and J-Bone, you know, your normal futuristic (laughs) cyberpunk names, as well as the bridge-dwelling rebellion, the Lotex. Will the data in Johnny's brain save the world, or does the fate of human existence rest on a dolphin? Let's find out. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot wait. (laughs) Yes. So we are back to talk about William Gibson's Johnny Mnemonic. I did not even realize it was a William Gibson screenplay. Ah. And I was actually commenting about the film as I was watching it uh, with my wife. Like, this reminds me of Neuromancer, that book by William Gibson. It's like implants and it's quite a diverse cast, Mm. um, similar to Neuromancer. And the credits rolled and it's a William Gibson. Like, so... (laughs) Although apparently he wasn't very happy about it. But Conrad, have you seen this movie before? I did, yes. I saw it on video back in 1996, I guess. Yes. And completely forgot about it. If you'd held a gun to my head, I would not have been able to tell you a single thing about it until I rewatched it for this episode. Yeah. And I'm not familiar with the works of William Gibson either. I'm aware of him. I know who he is. I knew that his name kept cropping up in the X-Files as a writer of guest episodes every now and again. Sure. I know he's this grandfather of cyberpunk and Mm. hates the fact that he's known for inventing the word cyberspace and so on and so forth. Right, yeah. But not something that that I've gone back to, but you watch this a lot as a teenager. Well, yes. Well, I had watched this a lot. You know, you go to friends' places and they'll be like, let's watch Johnny Mnemonic. And Keanu Reeves was <laughs> all the rage in the 90s, you know, after the Bill and Ted movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Chain Reaction was quite a popular film <laughs> in the 90s as well. Oh, yeah. Yes, um, where he was a nuclear physicist. <laughs> yes, yes. Very believable. Um, yeah. So I have seen this movie quite a few times, but I don't remember it. At all. Like, I didn't remember the whole data storage courier thing, plot point. For some reason, I recall it having time travel, which it doesn't. No. There's no time travel in this movie <laughs> no. whatsoever. You know, it's set in this future where, yeah, the internet is not safe and they have to physically transport data in these chips, these wet wired chips installed into humans. Yeah. Uh, and they, they can double their, their storage capacity with a doubler. <laughs> I don't exactly know how that works. <laughs> Just like an extra <laughs> extender or something. But um, I do like the premise and the fact that he had to wipe a whole bunch of childhood memories to make room for the data. Yeah. And, and I do like this kind of world where it's very uncanny how similar it is to our current state of the world Mm. with a plague. It doesn't seem to be 
as deadly though i don't know some people seem to be dying but it's not really shown that much apart from that one scene yeah and i kind of forgot about it as well i forgot there was a play yeah there's like a big <laughs> field hospital um that henry rollins is working in isn't yeah. there that sort of like the one in highlander 2 where everybody's dying from radiation from the sun so they all sure. end up in these nightingale hospitals with everybody out on stretchers and mm. volunteer doctors doing their best but yet it's not really delved into in any great detail and i think that's similar for the main character too because he's set up with a very familiar hero's journey he's an individual who's traded a part of his humanity for a lucrative job and creature comforts and then discovers that he holds the key to saving humanity I mean, it's, well, it's a couple of things. First of all, it's very much like Inception. Sure. You've got a guy who ends up having to do some sort of one last futuristic heist in Mm. order to get back his humanity or his connection to his childhood or whatever. And of course, the shadow of the Matrix looms large over this movie. Yeah. So this is 1995. (laughs) So this is a good four years before the Matrix. Mm. And... The visual aesthetic of the film is very similar to The Matrix. Like the corporate elite are in power and then the Mm. normal working class are being puppeteered by the corporation. Very kind of similar look to The Matrix and kind of a gritty sort of underworld where the working class live, Mm. the low techs in this movie. Yeah, which is more ethnically diverse as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, It did remind me a lot of other sort of armageddon type movies like uh, mad max mm. also it reminded me quite a lot of the fifth element as well yeah there's one scene where they're in a club and there's dance music but it's opera over it yeah it's very similar to the fifth element <laughs> yeah it's sort of opera techno metal mashup with yeah. the funky drummer loop on it which is like the most oversampled drum loop in existence but yeah it, what got me about that is the opera singer looked utterly utterly bored like she right. would rather be dead than performing but <laughs> right right, but yeah right. it is very similar you're quite right mm. so i don't know did this influence the fifth element because fifth element didn't come out for another two or three years so i don't know there are moments in this film that did feel like I really liked this world. Mm. But production-wise, it felt very low budget. Yes. Like, a lot lower than it should have been. Like, a lot lower than The Matrix, um, for starters. Like, The Matrix looks quite squish and polished, whereas this um, feels like everything's a set and everyone's an actor. And there, there are some, like, composite scenes with the helicopters. I'm like, they don't look like they're in the scene at all. Like really dodgy <laughs> green screen effects on certain scenes as well. It was a bit lacking production-wise. It is, yeah. So it's a $26 million budget, and apparently William Gibson and Robert Longo, who has not directed another movie since. Yeah. Primarily, he's an artist. He's a visual artist, a sculptor. Right, Not actually a film director. I think he's done a couple of music videos for bands like R.E.M., which were conceptual art pieces. And I think the belief was that he could direct a movie based on William Gibson's work. And the two of them were really excited about collaborating together. Mm, mm. They started shopping this around... And nobody would take them seriously because mm. they were asking for sort of 1.5 million to make this black and white, 
you know, art movie, ah, essentially, yes. and nobody okay. would pay any attention to them until they started asking for 30 million. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> they had a green light, right. and they wound up with a 30 million budget and Keanu Reeves, okay. right at the point when Speed was released, and he suddenly went from Bill and Ted mm. guy who was okay in Dracula but not really very good mm. and then yeah. all of a sudden he's an action hero yeah the studio thought wow we've got a hit on our hands here this is going to be great mm. and it wasn't <laughs> yeah okay so I mean we ha- we should really address the acting uh, Keanu Reeves is very hit and miss in this movie oh boy um, yeah. I mean <laughs> he, is, he is a bit hit and miss in general he tends to play the one character very well mm. like the neo character the lone wolf no emotions a lot of hushed tones a lot of one-liners often revenge involved john wick that kind of character works really well with him i mean he he's in a lot of movies i didn't realize how many movies he's been in uh looking at his filmography and like very good movies as well point break speed which came out the year before johnny the monarch which is Mm. insane because like polar opposite movies like speed is a very very watertight movie in my opinion oh yeah and then he kind of like did the matrix obviously and a scanner darkly which i think is a really incredible movie and then sort of odd good movies like constantine i quite liked uh and then it wasn't until john wick and came out in 2014 that he kind of had a, a huge revival mm. um, and he's kind of been in sort of supporting and cameo roles since. He is in a movie called Knock Knock in 2015. I think it's an Eli Roth movie. It's horrendous. It's so bad. Really, really, oh, really yeah. bad. Oh, yeah. I remember you telling me about this. Isn't it a bit similar to Hard Candy, the David Slade movie? Yeah, similar premise. There's two girls that arrive at his door, but... Uh, yeah, it's really terrible acting um, on all parts. <laughs> like, no one is good. <laughs> so, yeah, he's he's very hit and miss. In this movie, he he's a lot of miss. Yeah. I mean, his opening scene is, did they do other takes? I know. Like, <laughs> that's, I know. That's unfair, though, because they've got him staring directly at the camera, yeah. sort of doing a one-on-one conversation with his sort of video phone TV screen, sure. talking to his crime boss that gives him jobs. Ralphie. And yes. The full force of the Keanu performing ability straight down the barrel of the lens of the camera towards the audience. Mm. And uh, yeah, from the word go, I thought, oh, we are in for a rough ride here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, topped off with the fact that the movie kicks off with that title crawl yes that's barely comprehensible i mean yeah i mean there's a lot of information (laughs) to try to interpret in that title crawl Mm. and then you're just thrust into this world watching it now like i i don't think i understood this movie as a kid (laughs) it's quite dense yeah i mean it's silly but it is quite dense there's a lot of lot going on there's a plague there are data couriers there's the corporation and there's the yakuza they're working for the corporation. And then there's, was it Pharmacom? Mm. Some big pharmaceutical company. And then there are little low techs. And then there are implants into people. There's a lot in this world. Like, I do really like this futuristic landscape. But yeah, 
it is quite hard to sort of get into it because you you don't know what's going on for a bit. No, you don't. I mean, it's based on very rich source material. It's based on a short story from William Gibson. Mm. It strays quite significantly from it, though. The original is pretty much just the scene where Johnny Mnemonic meets Ruffy in the bar and Jane intervenes to rescue him because he's got this information in his head already and he's trying to get Mm. Ruffy to download it and he won't and there's a fight and Jane helps him escape and then she says, I know somebody else who can get the information out of your head and it turns out that it's a a heroin-addicted cybernetic dolphin, which, you know, (laughs) it's obvious, isn't it, really? I mean, that would have been the first thing I would have thought yeah, what a twist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty much the material they had. Mm. And then they have to stretch this out over the course of a whole plot. So you have the hero's journey where it turns out that he has the information in his brain that will save the world, which is a cure for this plague, which didn't exist in the short story. Yeah, right. And yes. the twist, which is that glad you're sitting down dan corporations are evil of course and they would rather (laughs) profit from other people's misery than actually release this cure and treat them for the condition that they're all suffering and dying Mm. from yeah yeah which i i read an economic uh, criticism of that to say that actually it's insane because they'd make much more money off the cure than they would off of just letting people die but anyway Mm. yeah 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 (laughs) that aside so it's a rich, dense, interesting world from William Gibson, as of course it would be, being who he is, with this obvious commercial Hollywood hero's journey story with some tropes from the late 80s, 90s about corporations mm, thrown in mm, for good mm. measure. I did read that it, it does draw heavily from a later novel, uh, Virtual Light. Okay, um, But he has come out and stated that the screenplay, they changed it a lot in this Uh, movie and even though he is credited as the screenwriter they changed it a lot and he wasn't happy with the international cut mm. of the movie apparently the japanese cut is better Mm. uh and more sort of true to his original screenplay i don't know where you would find that though it is available here actually it was just released recently in a box set that contains the japanese version as well as the international cut right but i didn't manage to get hold of it unfortunately yeah yeah it'd be interesting to watch uh i mean Mm. talking about this world of the movie i mean william gibson in neuro uh, what i'm reading neuromancer I have to admit, I did not finish it. Uh, (laughs) It kind of got real crazy. It got to a point where they were in space and there were Rastafarians in space. And I just like, I, yeah, his world building is dense, very similar to the world building in this movie. So it is a lot to sort of consume, Mm. but he does tend to have a lot of diversity in his characters. Like he's always going to different countries and a lot of different um, ethnicities and minorities, which is really interesting. Like you don't see that that much in sci-fi films. And even in this movie, there's, I mean, the Yakuza involved, Mm. but there are a lot of like very um, important Asian characters in this movie that you wouldn't see normally. Yeah, which fits into the cyberpunk aesthetic, which especially in the wake of the explosion of interest in anime uh, after Akira Mm. at the beginning of the decade, I think this vision of the future, which is that the Asian culture has taken over the world. I mean, this started on screen cinematically, probably with Blade Runner. I think most people think of that as being the first uh, film 
adaptation of of what was emerging from writers like William Gibson mm. and also trying to move away from this very staid sterile Stanley Kubrick lots of white people mm. in a NASA sterile space adventure yes. and instead twisting it into something that's sort of a, a combination of high tech and low life I think is the way that William Gibson put it and also uh, having this um, rock and roll influence. He says, when I started to write science fiction, I knew I was working in a genre deeply deprived of hipness. I went looking for ways to import as much rock and roll aesthetic into science fiction as possible. So he talks about in Steely Dan's lyrics, David Bowie, mm. Velvet Underground, and, quote, punk was the last viable bohemia. If you think about it, there hasn't really been a social movement as disruptive and mm. original as punk sure perhaps sure so yeah hence cyberpunk so a very different vision of science fiction and quite dystopian from the pers perspective i guess of white people who just wanted the nice clean yeah futuristic yeah. environments entirely populated by wealthy comfortable mm, white mm. people so yeah it's interesting socially in terms of how it represents the world yeah and what a shift it was for the genre yeah i i think this movie is quite pivotal in, in that sort of direction of sci-fi mm. i mean like the matrix and the fifth element that sort of more grimy but yeah punk aesthetic I guess we should talk about some of the other characters and actors in this movie. Takeshi Kitano mm. is in this movie. I didn't even realize it was him until the credits rolled. He is a very renowned director. He's directed some incredible movies. The Outrage, uh, The Blind Swordsman, Zatuichi, uh, Sonatine, and Violent Cop. Really, really great Japanese movies. Mm. And you've also got, because it's the 90s, you've also got Ice-T. Of course. And Henry Rollins. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> representing their musical genres. Um, Hip-hop and punk. Henry Rollins being, used to be the frontman of Black Flag. And Dolph Lundgren who was much more popular in the 80s. I didn't really even know about Dolph Lundgren until the, I watched The Expendables. Like, I hadn't really seen many of his movies. <laughs> Not even Masters of the Universe. Okay, I have seen that. I've seen Masters of the Universe and yeah. The Universal Soldier, I think is yes. the other, other yeah. Dolph Lundgren movie I've seen. And, and that's it. I didn't realize he was in The Punisher, which was, I didn't know there was an 80s Punisher movie. Yeah. Wow, I didn't. I'd love to watch that. And he was in Rocky Four. Yeah. And I haven't seen any of the Rocky movies. <laughs> so No, me yeah. neither. I know. I could just hear all the Americans <laughs> listening oh. to us just gasping in horror. Yes. We have never seen a Rocky movie <laughs> between us. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. They're sort of iconic, I guess, but no, not mm. seeing them. Dolph Lundgren is an interesting one in this one because I think he's deliberately trying to show his acting chops a little bit more by playing a very, very strange character. Oh, yes. This assassin who self-styles himself as a preacher, sort of an evangelistic cult leader, mm. but seems to be pretty much a lone wolf who's cybernetically enhanced up the wazoo and can kick everyone's ass. Yeah. Quite a formidable presence in the movie. It's ridiculous, but it's memorable. <laughs> I, I kind of liked it. Like, it, it is very ridiculous. Yeah. It is very kind of, oh, I, I guess... Guillermo del Toro almost, like, or Tim Burton, I don't know, just like a villain that is just 
insane. Yeah. Like that scene where he he just stands in the middle of the road while they're they're driving and he just shouts, Sinners <laughs> <laughs> and gets mowed down. It's yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's amazing. And he grabs Dina Meyer's character and shouts, Jesus time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So this is uh, apparently Dina Meyer's first feature film that wasn't a TV movie. Mm. I don't really know her, but she is from Starship Troopers and the Saw movies. Uh, Apparently, I've only seen a couple of them. And Dragonheart. Do you know Dina Myers? No, not really, no. I mean, she's wonderful in this. She's not given an awful lot to do, but she makes the most of it, I think. Yes, she does. She plays a new character that's been invented for the movie because the character in the original short story, Molly Millions, had already been licensed for a film adaptation separately. Oh, right. Because, I don't know, she's quite a popular character heroin right yeah so they couldn't use it so they had to come up with a new bodyguard character Mm. who's cybernetically enhanced and they also give her this nerve syndrome so she sort of can be a damsel in distress and kick ass which is quite i I mean i liked it i didn't mind it Mm. it was refreshing having a a damsel being able to take care of herself yeah and at least try to fight uh the street preacher dolph longren but yeah the romance was a bit like, what? Where did this come from? Like, I didn't get that during the film. It was a bit like, oh, this is just Hollywood being Hollywood all over again. Yeah. It seemed a bit out of place. It's completely unnecessary. And I don't think that played a role in the original short story. Right. Now, I like the equality of it. So Johnny saves Jane from Dolph Lundgren's preacher character. And Jane saves Johnny with Jones the Dolphin. Yeah. <laughs> sort of a, a deus ex machina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Great to see Henry Rollins in another film. Uh, he always just cameos in the strangest movies. He was in Feast, Jack Frost in 1998 movie, uh, Lost Highway, oh. and Heat, apparently, a very tiny role in Heat. Oh. And uh, most recently I saw him in uh, He Never Died, kind of a weird movie where he's like a fallen angel, and but he's like, an, I don't know, it's kind of a strange movie, but wow. he's pretty good in that. He's pretty good in this, actually. I thought, you know, f- for somebody who's not primarily an actor, yeah, I thought he did pretty well. And Ice-T was good as well. I, yeah. I enjoyed his role. I, I, I kind good. of wish there was more of it. There wasn't much to him at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah, I quite like Ice-T. I mean, he's in some horrendous movies, Leprechaun 5, In the Hood. Oh, God. Um, a, a movie called Jacob Tutu Meets the Hooded Fang. And uh, apparently he was also in a uh, porno movie called Frankenpenis in uh, 1996. Oh, lovely. But his breakout role was the movies Breakin' and Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. Oh, um, yes. And it's quite, <laughs> it's quite surprising to see him in that those two movies, which don't really have a plot. It's just a lot of dancing for no reason. Right. I mean, there is a plot. I mean, I'm, I'm being a bit harsh, but uh, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> quite ridiculous movies. But um, I have never seen either. Yeah, I'm very, very, very 80s. Uh, but I mean, Ice-T is probably most famous for being in 495 episodes of Law & Order. Oh, gosh. It's for you. 
which he is still currently a character in. He's been doing that since 2000, so 22 years in a TV show. Oh, well, well, good on him. I mean, everybody needs a stable job. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, he's saddled with some very clumsy exposition. Yeah. I thought the low-techs and the location of their headquarters would be quite secret, you know, that they wouldn't want people to know it. And yet he just immediately offers up to Johnny Mnemonic, I'm J-Bone, I run Heaven, the low-tech headquarters, and points at the bridge where their headquarters are. Yeah. And then walks off. And I thought, oh, shouldn't you keep that on the download? No? Okay, fine. <laughs> it's just exposition. It's like mm. when Shinji turns up at Takashi Kitano's office or does he play Takahashi? Gosh, that's confusing. Um, yes, he turns up at his office and he suddenly comes out with, I didn't want to disturb you in your grief. It must be very difficult to lose an only child. Which, let's face it, is incredibly tactless. You would never say this to even a friend, much less a very, very powerful criminal boss well, who's just lost their child yeah. to nerve syndrome. Yeah, It's clearly sort of putting words in characters' mouths mm. just so that they're pummeled at the audience and that they didn't need to be because you saw him watching videos of his child and you could tell that he was grief-stricken. So you knew what was going on, but no, somebody has to come out and say it. It's I don't know whether I knew. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know whether I knew. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, think, I think because it was so dense, like... It, I kind of needed that <laughs> exposition spouting, okay. like to make it very, <laughs> very clear. Me. But um, yeah, because there's so much going on in this movie. Yeah. I will agree, though, it is very clumsy. The storytelling is very, very clumsy. Coupled with the not so great effects and production value and not great acting at times, yeah, it was challenging to watch. But I did find it was quite 80s mm. for me. It didn't feel very 90s, like with the whole punk aesthetic and a lot of the, some of the makeup effects on, on the characters was very, very 80s. Oh, yeah. And I guess we should talk about the music. It's very 80s as well. Yes, Brad Fidel in the international version, although originally the score was written by Michael Danner, which apparently is still on the Japanese version. I've listened to an interview with Brad Fidel, who's probably most famous for scoring The Terminator. Yes. An all-synthesizer score with a very well-known theme that's very clunky and metallic and electronic and repetitive and sort of monotonous and relentless. It was perfect for that movie. Oh, it's iconic. It hasn't really achieved a great deal of success elsewhere. Sure. But in this movie, he was drafted in at last minute, apparently, and given the task of clarifying things, like in action scenes, he was told, it's not obvious who is doing what or how the audience should feel about it. So we need, this is heroic, this is good, mm. this person is bad. You've got to spell it out. And he talks about orchestral sessions, and yet right. it does not sound like an orchestral score to me at all. Yeah, I mean, there are some moments where I think there were strings, um, but yeah, a lot of it's very 80s, a lot of synth, a lot of 80s program drums mm. as well, like those 80s toms. It didn't seem very 90s at all. Like it felt like they were trying for something from 10 years ago. And the soundtrack, what did you make of that in terms of the songs that were included? Yeah, I didn't really recall the music during the film, but watching uh, the credits, like it, it is very sort of early to mid 90s, like Stamming Westward and Orbital, who were also in Hackers. Mm. Um, then Roland's Band, which is 
Henry Rollins <laughs> band. Uh, of course, he's got to get a song in there and Helmet and also a song by Bono and The Edge, but not you 2 It's credited Bono and The Edge. So um, Yeah, they did that on Mission Impossible as well, didn't they? They did a remix of the Mission Impossible theme for Brian De Palma's right, movie. Right. And they were Bono and The Edge. I don't know what happened to the rest of them. Not bothered. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> just half of you 2 Just the you. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like it, it wasn't very nice. Like it didn't feel like a normal nineties movie that tried to sell the soundtrack. It, it wasn't very overt during the film. Like it, it felt more scored mm. than having all of these like hit songs from the nineties, um, start playing for no reason. Now it's time for random trivia. Okay, Dan, what wonderful piece of trivia did you find in the recesses of your neural implant today? Yes, well, uh, this piece of trivia is about uh, the one of the actors in the movie. I did not realise that Ice-T's real name is Tracy Lauren Marrow. Which, uh, wow. Not much of a rapper name, so <laughs> I can understand why he changed it. Um, no, well. Yeah. <laughs> Tracy Lauren. I mean, Lauren is a, is a middle name and Tracy is a first name. And Marrow. Tracy is a male name. I'm yeah. not sure I've heard that very often. No, no. I mean, I've never heard of Lauren as, as a male middle name either. So, no. <laughs> wow. Uh, also, um, Henry Rowland's real name is Henry Lawrence Garfield. Uh, so, <laughs> not much of a punk name, so I can see why he changed it as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially in the 90s, because stick-on Garfields were everywhere oh. at the time. Yes. I don't think he'd be taken seriously with that. No, no. <laughs> I had a fun piece of trivia too about the implant, oddly enough. Johnny's implant is disguised as a treatment for dyslexia uh, in the movie. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, which is a problem that Keanu suffers from in real life. Oh, right. As well as the director, uh, Robert Longo. Right. Also suffers from dyslexia. And neither of them were very good as students because they had difficulty reading. Ah, so there you go. Well, uh. It's very interesting. And that's our trivia. Yes. I don't think the music did much to enhance the action either. I mean, the action scenes are poor. Robert Longo is a visual artist, not necessarily a action movie director, yeah. I don't think. I mean, certainly hasn't done it since. I think a really good example of this is the scene where Johnny Mnemonic is in the hotel room getting his download at the start of his mission and they're interrupted by the Yakuza. Mm. I mean, there's an initial moment where the door is broken down by a laser whip, which is really exciting, cutting through the door. But it's immediately followed by a poorly lit slow motion shot of people standing up and looking around you know you compare that sort of four years later with how slow motion was used in a groundbreaking <laughs> way in the matrix to enhance beautiful images of physical prowess or glorious destruction capturing these moments in what became known as bullet time mm. whereas this movie's got this dimly lit slow-mo shot of people looking confused 
for me, that encapsulated the difference. I know you shouldn't compare these two movies, but it's kind of inevitable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't mind that scene. It did come across as quite clumsy, but it did remind me of like John Woo movies, action gunfighting movies from Chinese cinema. Right, um, yeah, that's a good point. Not as sort of beautiful, I guess, because, I mean, John Woo, he's just got doves flying everywhere. No doves in this movie. <laughs> But there were a lot of shots in that scene where you don't really know who was shot or who was who or what was going on. Someone gets his hand sliced off or Johnny throws someone through a shower door, but then he gets up later on. Yeah, it is a bit confusing. It is, yeah. And I think that was exactly what Brad Fidel was asked to clear up in the international cut where they were trying to turn it into something more commercial, more obvious, more clear, more exciting that delivered on the action. I don't think the movie was intended to be that. Yeah. It is interesting, though, knowing that Robert Longo was more of a visual artist, because I didn't find it that visually beautiful either. No. I I found some of the set design was like sort of the atmosphere and, and the sort of dirtiness of the film quite interesting to watch but it didn't have the same sort of cinematic lighting of like Blade Runner or some of those 80s inspired more modern films like Drive or something like that where they've got crazy colors or neon lighting there wasn't really any of that no there are some incredible sets I mean the heaven set with all the televisions I mean that looks like something out of Terry Gilliam or 12 Monkeys it's yes that's right you know it's very impressive sets and William Gibson talks about walking onto the sets and being overwhelmed by seeing his worlds recreated in a live space. Sure. So, yeah, some of the sets are impressive. The way they're shot and lit. Yeah. Not great, I didn't think. Yeah. Very underwhelming. And then visually, like Lawnmower Man, it's saddled with an early CGI-rendered climax that's clunky, ugly, and relies on sort of abstract notions that have to be explained to you by Ice-T's character off screen. (laughs) It reminded me of Lady in the Water because he was telling you like, oh, he's doubling himself. And then you see this version of him in the virtual world being destroyed by a quote-unquote virus. Yeah. And then Ice-T's character says, don't worry, that's the double. It's like, I invented something, a problem came along, the invented thing solved it, no tension. (laughs) And this all happens in three seconds while you're looking at the ugliest, primitive 1995 CGI that you've ever seen created by Sony Imageworks. It drains all of the drama out of the finale. It's awful. I felt that finale (laughs) was bold, you know, relying solely on CGI for this huge finale scene that did not come across. I mean, it's the 90s. It's mid-90s. Like, that amount of CGI is insane Mm. for such a huge part of the film. Like, it's... I don't know why they relied on that amount of CGI. It is ugly, but it's not as ugly as Little Mole Man. Like, they kind of had fun with it. And because of the cyberpunk aesthetic, they could kind of lean towards those crazy colors. And, you know, it's a brand new world, the internet. Whereas Little <laughs> Mole Man felt very small and insular. And, and it's just like one guy floating around. Yeah, that's true. It does look, I mean, Sony Imageworks looks better than the company that did a couple of adverts. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. hired for Lawnmower Man. It's dramatically, it 
still doesn't do a lot for yeah, me, though. Yeah, and especially when he goes into the internet to do very basic tasks yeah. as well. Like, <laughs> phone someone. I'm making a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I need, like, these gloves and a visor, and I need all these special things yeah. to make a phone call. So... <laughs> It's ridiculous. Yeah. But it is the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's an advance on where we were with Lawnmower Man, where they thought, you know, VR is going to be everything and it's going to be this alternative world that people are going to live in whilst they're rocking about on a dentist chair. Mm. Whereas this clearly displays it as just a user interface. It's not a world that you're going to inhabit. It's just something you use to pass information and communicate. Mm. And he's putting on a visor and gloves in order to interact with it more efficiently, supposedly. Sure. Which points towards Tom Cruise in Spielberg's Minority Report a few years later, where he's just using his hands and just moving information around in front of him. Mm. That's something in the film's favour. But again, all of this comes from William Gibson, who was very good at Mm. thinking and projecting Mm. these things. But I mean, I would like to ask the question, has there been a good movie that has depicted virtual reality in a pleasing way (laughs) because it always comes across as a little bit shit no matter the technology like it always does there's that david cronenberg movie existence where yeah yeah you just end up in a fish factory or something it's like this is really rubbish (laughs) i would not want to spend my weekends doing this gutting fish or whatever yeah but that that movie they they film it so it's not like a virtual world it's not all cgi or anything it's filmed yeah as if it was real but it's not real yeah whereas i don't know i think it's really hard there's, there's a movie called gamer i think it's got gerard butler in it oh that's not great <laughs> the only movie that i can think of is that um ryan reynolds movie that came out recently what's that um a free, free guy. guy that works yeah but it's kind of video gamey so they can have ridiculous stuff happening so that's all right, I guess. What did you think of Spielberg's Ready Player One? I mean, that was just a big reference movie, wasn't it? It's like every two seconds, here's a reference <laughs> yeah. to some pop culture. <laughs> ha ha ha. Let's point and say, oh, I know what that means. Yes. Uh, I don't know. It was fine. This is a meme movie. I, I, yeah. It's like, well, look. Yeah. Member berries. I feel <laughs> it's, good. Yeah. It's my childhood again. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but yeah, I can't, I can't really think of another movie. No, you're right. It hasn't been done very satisfactorily anywhere, but it's definitely not done satisfactorily here it never really emotionally engages you a combination of the acting and really being underwritten i'm not really sure what johnny mnemonic is fighting for there's this whole one last gig to get is he trying to get back his childhood memories or not he doesn't seem to be particularly bothered at the end i think he just wants out of the courier game i guess the data storage transportation game yeah I do find it hilarious. I know it's an obvious joke, but the fact that Keanu Reeves can only store 320 gigabytes in his head just makes me laugh. I mean, it's, the, it's like less the, than the USB stick I've got rattling around in the drawer. Somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's the 90s. You know, we had floppy disks that could only store like three megabytes. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't really know what the main character wants. Mm. And seeing as the action was so bad, it never really engaged me just on a spectacle level. It was just sort of conceptually interesting with a cast that were variable, doing interesting things here and there. But yeah, Yeah, I don't know. I was invested in the world building from Mm. William Gibson. I like this world. And 
I would be keen to watch a sequel if they even made a sequel. Oh, God. I think that would be interesting. <laughs> well, I think it's unlikely. It was released on May 26th in 1995, debuted at sixth place behind Casper, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Braveheart, Crimson Tide, and Forget Paris. Oh, okay. And quickly slipped further down as more films released, like Bridges of Madison County. What a different landscape we had in the <laughs> cinema then. And um, Not a Marvel movie in sight. No, not a Marvel movie in sight. A real sort of historical epics, <laughs> action, military things, rom-coms. It was actually knocked out of the chart by While You Were Sleeping, popping back into the top 10 right while it slipped out it took 19 million dollars worldwide apparently in its original release Oof. so it bombed pretty badly so your likelihood of a sequel is quite slim i think yeah well <laughs> i'm hoping for it <laughs> well who knows keanu reeves up for anything these days in terms of yeah, you know matrix, belated you know, bill and ted sequel let's yeah, do it <laughs> matrix sequel yes oh yes, gosh so. yeah, that didn't go down well either did it <laughs> i still haven't seen it yeah. i haven't seen it but it did not go down well who knows johnny mnemonic 2 electric boogaloo <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards! Okay, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite futuristic implant-enhancing parts of the film in a number of nerve-attenuating categories. Best quote. My favourite quote, it's uh, it's a list of technology that Keanu rattles off. I, I always find it funny <laughs> oh, in wow. sci-fi movies where, where they list all this like technology that doesn't exist and... It's all a bunch of silly words. <laughs> so he says, um, this is before he goes into the internet to try to hack in and make the phone call. And he says to Jane, I need a Sinologic 16, Sogo 7 data gloves, GPL stealth module, a Burdine intelligent translator, <laughs> and a Thompson iPhone. Which was surprising, <laughs> but apparently uh, it's not spelt letter I phone. It's uh, it's spelt E Y E phone. So uh, not not a, pre a precursor to that the smartphone. The smartphone that changed the entire phone market yes. and rejuvenated Apple single-handedly. Yeah, yeah. There we go. My favourite quote comes from, I think, Keanu's iconic scene in this movie, which is where he stands on a hill and has a hissy fit about uh, yes. the fact that he's got to save the world when he really doesn't want to. And he says, quote, I want room service. I want the club sandwich. I want the cold Mexican beer. I want a $10,000 a night hooker. I want my shirts to be laundered like they do at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a fabulous sort of screaming meltdown of just impetuous, entitled silliness when he really should be focusing on the bigger issues at oh, hand. Yeah, and I know. I loved it. I know. <laughs> I, I would say that was my favourite scene. It was just like so... I mean, it's, it's kind of giving his all, really. It's a monologue. It goes on for ages. It's, it's just him acting. Acting. Yes. <laughs> Best hair or costume. Hair or costume. I give this to uh, Pretty, the character played by Tracy Tweed, who's one of Raffi's ageing, supposedly, ah, yes. bodyguards, who has this amazing makeup that's running from 
her eyebrow line down to her ear and from the corner of her mouth up to her ear yeah. and has all this shading on it. A lot She's of contour. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Ha- hair sprayed bouffant, almost like a helmet of, of, of sort of backcombed hair over her head. It's very 80s punk. It's she looks like 80s. an artist called Toya Wilcox in the yeah. UK. But she really just inhabits it now she's in it. She goes completely punk and Mm. inhabits that character. It's great. I think she looks incredible. Yeah. So how about you? Yes, hair and costume. Uh, I have to go with Johnny's hair. But again, it it is very 80s. It's not 90s at all. It's got like a side part, but it's not 90s gelled, like spiky. It it doesn't look like that. It's... It's kind of it's like hair sprayed and dry, <laughs> but yeah. it's got a very yeah. clear side part as well. Like it's almost like he's from like Street Fighter or something. Yes, it's <laughs> it's sort of shaved and chiselled into position. Yeah. This side, it's more like a impenetrable wall <laughs> that mm. goes along. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, most nineties moment. I was gonna go just for the obvious. Uh, the internet. Is the focal point mm. of the movie. It was very reminiscent of, of hackers and and the portrayal of the internet being this kind of city of digital spires yeah. and I, I don't know. Like, yeah. why did they decide that was what the internet <laughs> looked like? I don't know. Interestingly enough, that was my bid for sci-fi cliche, which is the internet right. is a busy cityscape of lights and towers <laughs> and neon signs. Yes. See also hackers. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's inevitable. Really is. For 90s, I had cyberpunk in Japan, the ah. anime explosion following Akira in June 91. And you just had all of these dystopian future high-tech, low-life combinations, starting with Total Recall in 1990 Uh, from Paul Verhoeven, Demolition Man in 93, Strange Days also in 95, 12 Monkeys from Terry Gilliam Mm -hmm. in 95, Mm -hmm. The Fifth Element in 97, which you mentioned, and then, of course, the one that revolutionised action filmmaking, The Matrix in 1999, which... Yeah, signal the way forward for the next decade. Yeah. Favourite scene! Favourite scene, you've already mentioned it, it's the Johnny monologue. It's just Keanu Reeves at his best. It's the small hill to die on scene, I call it. (laughs) But immediately before that, there are some great moments too. Like, the introduction to the scene is two guards in like a crane on this heaven bridge that their secret base is on. And you just come in in the middle of their conversation and one of them says to the other... I told her, if she want to get with me, then I want to get with her. Screw the physical disability. You know what I'm saying? Because it's about the feeling, right? It's like, what the hell are we coming in on here? What is this conversation about? Yeah. But, it did I kind mean, of, great. It kind of reminded me of like a like a tw- Quentin Tarantino movie or something. You know how he always in- yeah. introduces characters from out of nowhere that you have this extended scene with, and then they're just killed <laughs> in the next yeah. scene, <laughs> which, yeah. which happens in this movie as well. It does, yeah. No, I loved it. So it started off with that, then they dropped a burning car on somebody. <laughs> It looks amazing. And then Keanu Reeves had a meltdown on a hill. Yeah. yeah. So I just thought, this is great. I wish the whole movie was like this. I know. <laughs> Most cliche moment. I've already said my cliche internet as neon cityscape. So that's mine. How about you? I mean, there's so many cliches in this movie. But again, you know, it's William Gibson, godfather of 
cyberpunk and, and sci-fi as we know it. Um, but I'm going to pick a very sort of subtle cliche. Cars in the future? The, the easiest way to make a car futuristic is just to add a humming sound. So they're electric, right. I guess. But they didn't look electric. <laughs> they just looked like normal cars. But when when you saw them driving on on the road, they had this kind of humming, <laughs> high-pitched hum sound <laughs> that they made. But my car makes that sound. Does it? Does it, though? Yes. Yeah, so it, yeah, it does. I think you commented on it when I came to, to visit. Yeah. Right. But okay. my electric car. Yeah. It does actually make that sort of noise. Oh, wow. So wow. You're living the in... The future is here now, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Best special effect. Without doubt, my favourite special effect in this movie is the... I think it's called a molecular whip, a laser whip. Uh, which I think yeah. is achieved purely through um, rotoscoped light added in post-production. I think it's an optical. It's really cool and fast, and I love how uh, Shinji keeps cutting statues in half diagonally, and in later he cuts Udo Kier in half yes, yes. <laughs> diagonally as well, and he falls to pieces. It just slides um, off, yes. <laughs> but it's just the way he sort of whips it around, and you just get this sense of this sort of, a halo of red light around the room and and then something terrible happens and somebody loses a limb. I don't think it's terribly practical. I don't know how he uses it without cutting his own limbs off. Well, um, I mean, he... Which uh, eventually yeah, he does. He, he definitely falls on a sword at the end uh, <laughs> with that one. Yeah, he does. Yeah, it gets his head uh, sliced off. Um, that was my favourite effect as well because it just looks so tangible. It looks like it's there. It doesn't look rotoscoped. It doesn't look like it's been composited. It, it, yeah, it's really, really well done. And and the fact that it's just mm. so destructive as well. You can just whip a door open <laughs> with it. You know, yeah. slice a, a whole human in half. <laughs> it's, ugh, that's, that's terrifying. Favorite sound effect. I always giggle at that quintessential modem beep sound from the 90s like in, and and they have it in this movie when when johnny goes into the internet but it's kind of like mixed low maybe they didn't want to make it sound too too loud but it's it's just so part of 90s internet that that sound that it's just yeah. it's, it just brings me right back to my childhood yeah, it's iconic. Back in the days when you used to do it down the phone line, didn't you? And if somebody else in the house picked up the phone yeah. to dial, it would interrupt your internet connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Honestly, there's a whole generation of kids listening to this that are thinking, what are you talking about, Grandpa? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, true. and we had, uh, there were kids in, in my school, they, they would have two lines. They would have two phone lines, one dedicated yeah. to, the, to the internet. Those were the cool kids. They were the rich ones, yeah. yeah. They, they... They, were, they were the rich kids <laughs> that had the dedicated <laughs> internet line. Yeah. yeah. So, favourite sound for you? My favourite sound was quite a simple one. It's just the synth snap noise that you hear when Johnny plugs that needle into his brain interface. Oh, it's yes. just a lovely little wet resonant synth crack that I just thought, oh, good, that's really nice. That's sort of technological, but it has a hint of sort of, you know, power that you mm. can really feel like something 
you know, he could short fuse himself if he's not careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked yeah. it. I thought it was nice. Yeah. Most funniest moment. The funniest scene for me is definitely the reveal that the Deus Ex Machina in this movie <laughs> is a cybernetic dolphin called Jones. Yeah. I just love it. <laughs> Especially it's sass because Johnny calls it a fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it sort of z- z- microwaves him from it. <laughs> love it. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, come on. <laughs> that's you know in that set as well i really did feel like i was in a terry gilliam movie yeah, for a moment yeah. it just was inches away from python really was sure 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 um funniest scene for me this is definitely unintentionally funny so it's a scene uh-huh. of johnny and spider so that's henry Rowland's character and they're having this back and forth about like the situation and it's supposed to be very tense and it's it's kind of reminiscent of like Michael Bay movies or, or even all those crime scene investigation movies where there's a lot of cuts back and forth between the two characters. It's a lot of dialogue. Um, but every time it cuts, the, the camera's moving. And I, I, I know it's supposed to add a sort of tension, yeah. I guess, but it just looked... <laughs> ridiculous like all this kind of moving forward and it would cut to Keanu moving forward it was just it was almost like a parody of itself and I just I thought it was hilarious yeah. it, it begins that sequence with a circular camera motion going around yeah, the yeah, bed yeah. as well I noticed yeah it's just like this is just kineticism for the sake of it I know. to make this dialogue scene interesting it more I guess tense but it, it didn't it uh, didn't work at all <laughs> well that's our movie release. It is. Hi, I'm Jean-Nic. And I'm Jean-Philippe from La Matos. And you're listening to Movie Oubliettes. Okay, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. Final verdicts. Should 1995's Johnny Mnemonic be broadcast out via Dolphin on all your futuristic <laughs> cathode ray tube tv sets to be adored by all or should it be sliced and diced by a laser grot and slid discreetly into the oubliette to be lost in 90s cyberpunk history conrad johnny mnemonic Mm. what say you well i yes i think it's good for me to go first because i think you're more of an unknown quantity i'm fascinated to see if this holds up compared Uh. to your teenage experience of it for me i think it's fairly obvious from what i've been saying during the main discussion that this this movie did not work for me i mean it's the 90s it's not my favorite decade Mm. i think this obviously pales in comparison to the game changer that was the matrix that came four years afterwards i think it's obviously directed by an inexperienced director who despite being an amazing visualist i've looked at his work Mm. he's an incredible artist right he is not a good director and he is particularly not a good director of a commercial action movie there are lots of interesting elements the world building that it's based on is incredible some of the ideas in there are really thought-provoking and interesting i wasn't engaged in the story at all I don't think Keanu really shone. I don't think this was his <laughs> finest hour in terms of acting, bless him. I still love the man. But no, 
I, I wouldn't inflict this on anybody. I would just sort of like put cones around it and direct people towards the Matrix and say, nothing to see here. Uh, <laughs> this, <yes>. is, this, <laughs> this did not work. Uh, and uh, But I would like to see the Japanese cut to see if mm. it's any better. I'd be intrigued. But no, I'd, I don't think this one. I think this one is in the oubliette for a reason. I think it should stay there. But how about you? Well, I think my opinion about this movie is going to be skewed by three main things. Uh-huh. I, I love Keanu Reeves. Right. And I think I will adore anything he's in. I don't know what it is. <laughs> His acting is horrendous in, this, in, in parts of this movie. I mean, the opening <laughs> scene is just like, oh my God. <laughs> did, <laughs> why did they not do another take? Was this the best one? Um, but... Yeah, he's he's just something just so endearing about him. Like I I just love the guy. He's just so good. And mm. like I mean, he plays that one character, the John Wick Neo character really really well. Um mm. he's kind of reached an age where it's like, well, I know what I'm good at. I'll just do that. And it yeah. works. It just works. <laughs> it's it's John the John Wick franchise is some some of the best action movies modern action movies I've ever seen. Mm. I really like the world building in this movie as well. I'm not a huge um, fan of William Gibson. I've only read like half of Neuromancer. I should really finish that. But I I do <laughs> feel like he, ha- he has a really uh, interesting vision for the future. And there's only like one other movie from uh, his work, um, a movie called... Uh, New Rose Hotel in 1998. Haven't seen that. Um, no. I would like to see more adaptations of his his written work in, on screen. And yeah, nostalgia is, is very, very big uh, <laughs> for this movie. I don't really remember this movie. I, I remember watching it many times, but I just don't recall any of the plot at all. Um, but yeah. It's just so 90s and awesome for me. <laughs> I can't. There's like, oh, no. I, I, I know it's bad. I know it's a bad movie, but there's something so, I don't know, captivating just watching it unfold. Wow. It did come across as very 80s as well to me. So, like, I mean, you compare it to like Stuart Gordon movies, they're, they're terrible, but they're, they're really great to watch. <laughs> and, and for me, Johnny Mnemonic was actually really fun to rewatch oh, as no. an adult. <laughs> so oh, I no. would definitely recommend this movie for sure. Yes. Oh gosh. 1995 well. Keanu come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you know what that means. Yes. We're going to have to deploy the coin of fate. All right. Ooh, what are you going to go for, Dan? Heads or tails? Maybe I'll go for tails. Okay, here we go. Okay. It's heads. Oh, yes. come on. <laughs> <laughs> Reflip. <Marvelous>. Reflip. <laughs> I I think there will be a lot of people listening to this being very <laughs> relieved at the moment, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, maybe there's yeah, a lot of yeah. nostalgic '90s love for Johnny Mnemonic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I will admit it's not a great film. It is really not a great <laughs> film, but I I still love it. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. Maybe no. it's that childhood nostalgia. 
I think it might be. I think it might be the same experience that you've had with some other films from the 80s that I've thrust in your general direction. Okay, but unfortunately, uh, in this cybernetic form, he is going back into the oubliette. So come here, you. Let go of me. I want. Down you go. (sighs) Heartbroken. Heartbroken. (laughs) No, Johnny, no. Well, if you thought that we made the wrong decision there after tossing a coin, which is the most scientific method of making a decision, then please do let us know. You can contact us on all social media as Movie Oubliette. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Yes, and if you do want to support us, uh, as little as a dollar a month will give you access to extended segments and being able to vote for our future uh, movies that we will discuss. Uh, this movie was voted not as as a patron's choice, but we did give some options of, of what we had. So this one did uh, come up on top, but uh, sadly it did. not on top in the verdict. But uh, <laughs> uh, for $5 a month at Patreon, you get access to uh, our extended interviews with our guests and also the once-a-month Minnesota in visual form. Mm. And during Iconicon, you might get access to some behind-the-scenes exclusives too. So oh, yes. Look out for that. Yes. And, of course, we have merchandise uh, available on Redbubble as well. You should go to the Retro Blasting site to find uh, the Iconicon T-shirt with us as really cool characters. Like really cool. Yes. <laughs> From 80s films that we've covered and still nobody's guessed who we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We should do a prize. If you can guess who we are, you get one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They're pretty pretty obscure. I should have I should yeah. have gone as Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually that hairstyle would suit you. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Conrad, what are we going to be doing next episode? Well, unbelievably, it will be on the eve of Iconicon, so our very next episode will be a crossover with the Endless Bullets podcast. Matt Swafford, the host Ah. of that show, will be joining us to do an action comedy zombie film from 1988 that I have never heard of called Dead Heat. Whoa, okay, I've never heard of that either. (laughs) No. No, it stars Treat Williams, Joe Piscopo, Darren McGavin, Lindsay Frost and Vincent Price oh, in wow. a film directed by editor Mark Goldblatt. So okay. I've, I've no idea. Didn't know this thing existed. But Matt tells us we're in for a treat. So right. can't wait. Okay. Yeah. Looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Until then. Bye for now, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> Jesus time.